Good morning. It's good to see all of you this morning. Well, you're a good-looking crew. You know that? I mean that. No, seriously, I mean it. All right, we'll be in Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9 this morning. So uh, we got about two and a half hours worth. Um, hopefully you got the email kind of warning you on that. Um, we really are going to cover those chapters, but uh, it's, it's not going to take that long. Um, so I'll give you just a chance to turn to Genesis 4. Um, if you want to go ahead and do that in your Bible, your phone, your iPad, whatever you got. And while you turn there, just a few announcements um, in particular about this Wednesday. Um, but I'll start with this. We have hired an uh, admin assistant. It has been about a five to six week process of seeking the Lord, um, praying, God, what would you have us do as an elder body and meeting with our leadership team. And then this past week, uh, we had the opportunity to meet with a, with a young lady who's engaged to be married, who um, just very... Uh, just very quickly at the end of that meeting, there was this general consensus and unity. That's who God would have us hire. And so that's a beautiful thing. Um, we, uh, we ask for that, make it that clear, God, and then he does it. And so we want to we thank him for that. Thank you for those of you who have been praying with us. Um, so this Wednesday night is First Wednesday. Um, and if you've never been to a First Wednesday, it's a chance for us to come together as a full body because Sunday mornings are two services. So oftentimes you'll go to church here and three or four months down the road run into somebody and think they're a visitor and realize, oh, you've been here a half a year. Um, also, you may like skip out on church for a while and it feel like nobody misses you. You know what's happening? They just assume you're going to a different service. First Wednesdays are a chance for us to come together as one body, to worship together, to have communion together. This first Wednesday is going to be unique. Two reasons. One, we're going to introduce the uh, new administrator to you, her and her fiance, because they won't be attending here. They, um, they attend somewhere else. Her husband is a worship uh, minister somewhere else. But for this particular Wednesday, they'll be here just to introduce themselves to you, for you to introduce yourselves to them. But all this year, First Wednesdays are different because we are um, turning over our First Wednesdays to all of our different team ministries. And so this First Wednesday is going to be led by our worship team. I'm excited. Uh, Jason Lewis, uh, our worship minister, is going to be the one actually teaching the word this Wednesday night. And then I think Jason Martin uh, is going to be leading the band and lead, leading us in worship. So it's going to be it's a really exciting night. Um, I'm going to encourage you to be here uh, to meet the administrator, but just to participate in a, in a full night. Um, and so, uh, so don't expect um, Jason just to talk about music. I'm excited about what God's put on his heart to bring in a way of message. It's going to be a good night uh, for a number of reasons. So this, first, this Wednesday is first Wednesday, 6.30. All right. Um, let, me, uh, let me get started in the Word with a little bit of introduction, and then we'll take off rolling. We're going to start in chapter 4. We are going to skim through several chapters. Um, what's happening here in, uh, in the Bible is this. Um, Moses is writing this, and he's through the first 11 chapters of Genesis, given us an introduction to God's story, okay? So this is the journey we're on this year to, uh, to learn from the Scriptures this beautiful story of God, um, to take this uh, Bible that has got different chapters and titles and authors and spans um, over a thousand years of just writing uh, and see this beautiful story God is, is writing to us. And it's not so much that there's continuity or that you find Old and New Testament connections as much as we see this beautiful story that God is unfolding. And so today and next week, we'll be wrapping up the introduction to the story. And, uh, and then we'll take off in, in chapter 12 of Genesis with the, with the story, which would be the equivalent of maybe chapter 1 of the story. So today, we're going to look at the unfolding of what happened last week in Genesis 3. Um, the, the introduction of sin and literally the fracture of the image of God in man. So let me bring us up to speed. 
uh, here's what's happened so far in the introduction. God has started with saying, I created everything, and I created it good, very good. As a matter of fact, nothing in creation knew anything that was not good. All that man knew, all that the beasts of the field knew, all that creation knew was very good. And that's how God starts the story. Then he, in the next chapter, says this, man is created with an inerrant, specific purpose. Okay, it's not just chaos. You guys go, be what you want to be. God says, no, I actually created you as human beings, as male and female, with a specific purpose. And so the, the umbrella of that purpose is that you and I would reflect the image of God to creation and back to God, so that when God looks at earth, as he spins it around, no matter what side he's looking at, he's seeing a reflection of his own glory coming back. And that's why you and I were created. And in that, he gave us some function. He said, here, be fruitful and multiply, which sounds like just a reproductive charge. It's part of it. But then in chapter 2, he says, here's how I want you to do it. I want a man to leave his father and mother and the woman to do the same. And I want the two to come together and be united as one flesh. So like there's this, from the very beginning, okay, this, this idea that man and woman should be married and committed faithfully to one another is, is part of our design. God says, I've designed you to live in community. And that is most climactically revealed in the family structure. But then from there, as, as kingdom citizens, we would live in community with one another. This is how God creates things. Then in chapter 3, he says, here's, here's what um, I ask you to not do. Don't eat from this tree. If you eat from this tree, you will surely die. And not only that, so two things will happen. One, you will enter into the knowledge of not good. You'll begin to know from that point forward what is not good evil, the opposite of good. Two, you will surely die. We see the serpent slip in, question what God said, then question God's character, then Eve participates and questions what God said and she adds to it. Adam's right there with her, they both participate in sin, and boom, the fracture starts. And a shadow of death is cast over man. Okay? But in the midst of that, there's, there's a small little remnant of hope. It's a a verse we looked at. It was in the curse of the serpent at the very end. There will be enmity between the serpent and between the woman's offspring. That the serpent will nip at the heel of the offspring of the woman. But from the seed of this woman would come one who would crush the head of the serpent. And that's the only phrase of hope really we get in the curse. Everything else is just like bad news. Like we get it. Pain in childbirth is multiplied. To go out and make a living is not going to be easy. Sweat of your brown, thorns in the field. Creation is going to feel like it's working against you from this point forward. But just that little, little fragment of hope. This morning's sermon title is called The Echo of Hope. And I chose that for a specific purpose, so let me explain it and then we'll get into it. You know how an echo works. There's There's a source of noise. A voice, an instrument, something causes a noise. But then what follows is an echo, a repeat of that noise... And the further you get away from the source, the more faint it becomes, and even the more distorted it becomes, right? Until it fades away. So what we're going to see unfolding in the introduction in this shadow of darkness that's being cast over man is that hope that God spoke in the curse is like an echo. And as it moves forward to the flood, a very, very dark time in human history, we struggle to find the hope. We struggle to hear the echo of God's promise in that. And so what happens in chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, and then in 9, well actually ends in 7, then you get the flood. 
is this. You're seeing a direct connection in, um, in genealogy and lineage between Abraham and Adam. Okay? So that's what's happening in this introduction. Very clearly, when Adam comes on the scene, you know he's kin to Adam and you can trace the lineage back. But two other things are unfolding simultaneously. There is the progressive growing shadow of death. And we're going to see it in the scripture. It gets darker and uglier the further it gets from the fall. But then we have this echo or this remnant of hope that just won't go away. It continues to follow. It reminds me of, um, if any Lord of the Ring fans, um, the, the J.R. Tolkien story, um, I think, seriously, Hallie and I just watched the trilogy again last month. And, um, and there's like this shadow of, growing shadow of death over, uh, over Middle Earth. And the hope is in this little hobbit, right? And it just continues to diminish. And you continue to think, they're not going to go any further. You're not going to go any further. They finally get to the end, and Sam Wise is like, I can't carry the ring, but I can carry you, Mr. Frodo. And, like, you just keep thinking it's going to end. I love, I love just this little, it's actually in the extended version of Return of the King, so you may not have seen this, but there's, when Frodo and Sam Wise get to the Valley of Mordor, and they're looking at the, at the and they're, they're understanding, we're about to go to our death. Matter of fact, um, Samwise gives Frodo his last drink of water, and Frodo's like, there won't be any left for the return home. And Samwise is like, we're probably not going to return home, Frodo. We're getting ready to die. I mean, look at that thing. And, uh, and, then, and then Samwise looks up, and the crowd, clouds break for just a second, and a star breaks through. I don't know if you've seen that or know what that is. But, and Samwise makes a comment. He says, like, man, how beautiful. Look at that beautiful light that even the darkness can't completely destroy and kill. That's not an exact quote. That's my version of it. And then the clouds come back over it, and the, the light's gone. And we're back to hopelessness. In so many ways, that's Genesis 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, until we get to chapter 12. And so um, there you go. There's a, go watch Lord of the Rings. Um, so chapter 4, okay, here's what's going to happen in chapter 4. We're going to see the lineage of, of the shadow of death very clearly. It begins with murder. Cain kills his brother, and it ends with murder. But here's what we're going to see. We're going to see progression in man's arrogance, his boastfulness, in his own sin. So let's look quickly at just the first part of chapter 4. Let's start in verse 6. So here's what happened. Cain and Abel are brothers. They bring an offering before God. God accepts Abel's but rejects Cain's. Cain gets upset. He's angry. And so God speaks to him about his anger. Verse 6 says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do will, well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, right, sin is crouching at your door. Saying to Cain, listen, it's your heart. Don't blame me because I didn't accept your offering. Your heart's wrong. If you do well, you'll be accepted. If you don't do well, here's what's happening. Sin is... Crouching at your door like a, like a lion, that's the imagery, crouching at your door, and its desire is for you, you must rule over it. And then what unfolds in chapter 4 is man not ruling over his sin, but instead letting the, the lion of sin overcome him. Okay, and so there's this lineage of death that gets passed on in chapter 4. Some other things happen, you get the introduction of musical instruments, you get the domestication of animals, you get the uh, introduction of polygamy which is, is, is an undoing of chapter 2, uh, you get this guy named Lamech. And that's really where the chapter 2 kind of climaxes at, and this guy named Lamech, he's a descendant of Cain, and, uh, and he has two wives. Just to direct in your face, I know, God, you told me to take a woman. I don't care. I'm going to take two. 
But then it ends with murder. He murders somebody. And look at what he says to his wives. This is in chapter 4, um, down in verse, let's start in 23. Lamech says, said to his wives, just throwing it out there, not even pretending. Adah and Zalah, that's the, the wives' names. Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. You feel the boastfulness in this? Like, I got something to tell you. He's bragging about his sin. This is like locker room talk here. Come here, I want to tell you what I did today. Here's what he says. I have killed a man. Now, it sounds like a confession, but he's going to go on. Not only did he kill a man, he killed a man for unjust reasons. Look at what he says. I killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Just very clearly saying, this guy didn't deserve to die. He did less than that to me, but I killed him. You hear the boastfulness in that? Now, if you follow the progression of sin and you go back to the garden, when, Cain, when Adam and Eve are busted in the garden, do you remember the response? Adam owns it. Now, he, he, bl- he blame shifts, right? He says, the woman you gave to me, she gave it to me, and then I ate it. So he's owning the fact that he disobeyed God. He's just shifting the blame to Eve. Then we get to Cain and Abel, and Cain kills Abel, and, a- and God comes to Cain and says, where's your brother? And he responds, now he's not owning it anymore, but he responds with sarcasm and a sense of arrogance and says, what, am I my brother's keeper? So no longer is man owning it. Then we get to Lamech, and now we're back to owning it, but we're owning it in a sense of like, I don't really care, God. I don't care that you created your image to be reflected in man. I took a man's life, and I took it unjustly. And not only that, I'm going to tell my wives, because I don't care that you told me to take one wife. You see this progression of sin here? And so this is the lineage that comes from Cain. If you follow through there, so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so gave birth to so-and-so, and we get Lamech. Now, the chapter ends with an echo of hope. Praise God. And I don't think that in the original text, I think 4 and 5 should really be together. But look at the end of 4 with me. We see this uh, in, starting in verse 25. Now, Adam knew his wife again. That knew is the, the idea of intimacy. And, uh, yeah, you get where it goes, right? It's the S-E-X word. Um, but that's the way God designed S-E-X, to be very intimate and knowing of one another. So Adam knew his wife again. And she bore a son and called his name Seth, for she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel. So what's she saying? Seth is going to take Abel's place in this family. For Cain killed him. To Seth also was born a son, and he, he called his name Enosh. And at that time, look at this phrase, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now that's not widespread, right? We just, this horrible lineage of just death and, and just bigotry and idolatry and, and murder and, and there was a remnant of hope because out of Seth's lineage came a people who began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so as Moses is writing this down, he's saying this is dark, it's ugly, this shadow of sin is just incredibly hopeless, yet there remained this echo, this echo that God was not done with man. And this leads us into chapter 5, and and here's what happened. Moses tells us now, okay, that's the lineage of the shadow of death. Let me share with you now the lineage of the echo of hope, and it goes through Seth. So here's what happens. Genesis 5 connects us um, from Adam to Seth to a new Lamech, a different Lamech, to Noah. Okay, so Noah's just not this random guy who God found out, you know, chopping down a cherry tree or something, you know. He specifically had a lineage here in this unfolding of the story. 
So here's how it begins in chapter 5, verse 1. This is the book of the generations of Adam. And that word Adam literally is man. Remember, God gave Adam his image. Cain was displaying the image of corruption, sin, evil, and death. Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam, though. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of who? God. He's reminding us of something. Then he goes on to say, male and female, he created them. So something in our male and femaleness, and we understand this union of marriage. And he blessed them, and he named them man when they were created. Verse 3, Adam lived 130 years. He fathered a son in his own likeness, in his own image. And what was his name? Seth. Who did Adam pass on the image of God to? Seth. Now, this is, this is really important for us to understand. This continues to happen over and over again in the Old Testament. Typically, naturally, most logistically, the firstborn would pass on, right, birthrights, inheritance, image, name. But here we got this, this third son, right? Same thing happens with Abraham. You got Isaac, but you had Ishmael first, but he doesn't give it to Right? The, the promise gets passed on through Isaac, the secondborn. Same thing with Jacob and Esau. Jacob steals the birthright from his older brother. So this echo of hope is just unfolding in kind of an unpractical way. Not the way God designed it to happen. And so Seth bears the image of God because he received it from Adam. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. So then we're going to get this, Seth lived so many years, he gave birth to a son, then he lived this long and he died. Then his son gave birth to another son, lived so many years, and then he died. So what we're getting is really a, 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 a positive genealogy. We're not getting this idea that these guys had lots of wives. It's just as simple, this image of God is being passed down. That's what the author wants you to see. This is the, this is the lineage of hope here, the lineage of Seth. But it has some beautiful things in it. Like, this is where Enoch comes in. Have you heard about Enoch? There's a story about Enoch, he walked with God, and then he was no more. Like, Enoch's in the lineage of Seth, not Cain. Pick it, pick it up in verse uh, 21. So before Enoch was Jared, who lived 962 years. Then Enoch comes on the scene. He lived 65 years, and he fathered Methuselah. We know Methuselah, Methuselah lives 969 years. Okay, but in between, Methuselah and Jared was this guy named Enoch. Look at Enoch. Enoch walked with God. And after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Thus, excuse me, Enoch walked with God and he was not or was no more for God took him. He lived a third of the lifespan of of his dad and his son. Like there's just something beautiful about that story. And so like it's inserted in the lineage of Seth. This idea, it's a good thing to walk with God. Whereas in the other lineage, what do we get? Murder and polygamy and darkness and sin and boastfulness. And in this lineage, we get walk with God. Now, here's what happens. Enoch, who walked with God, he had a son named Methuselah. Methuselah had a son named what? Lamech. This is is a different Lamech. Now, I don't think it's any mistake that that both lineages have a Lamech, because in that other lineage, Lamech was like the exclamation point on death and, and arrogance and, and idolatry. In this lineage, I want you to see what Lamech does. So, in verse 28, Lamech is the son of Methuselah. He's the grandson of the man who walked with God. Lamech had lived 182 years. He fathered a son. He called his name what? 
Noah. So which lineage does Noah come from? The lineage of hope. You see what Moses is revealing to us here? Noah wasn't just some random guy that came out of the wilderness. Noah was the grandson of who? Enoch, who walked with God, who was a descendant of who? Seth. And so Noah bore the image of God. Now, what we need to understand, though, is this, this hope is a small and a faint hope on the, on the earth right now. Okay, this is not widespread people having big worship services and everybody loving God. It's like one man, and he passed it on to his son. His son walked with God and passed it on and passed it on. It's a remnant of the hope. All right. Then the chapter ends with verse 32. Actually, let's read the rest of 29. He called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. What's Lamech saying about Noah? God, please rescue us. May there be something different about this one. May you use this one to end the curse. Okay, now we know what happens with Noah. Has three sons, their wives, they're put on a boat, earth is flooded. And God continues to pass on that hope through Noah and his lineage. But at this point, um, Lamech is hoping that God will end the curse with Noah, with one man. And so what we're seeing now is something else happening in the story that I want you to begin to catch on to. This is what I call the reverse echo. So let me explain. You know how an echo works. Loud, not as loud, not as loud, faint. Think of it in reverse, okay? And here's what's beginning to happen. The promise of Jesus is beginning to be proclaimed. And it's faint, it's hard to hear, but it's a reverse echo going forward. And the closer you get to Jesus, the more clear it becomes. So if you're standing in the Bible at the cross and you're looking back, you can hear the cross echo back across creation. And so while Lamech is going, may God rescue us through one man, you hear how he's beginning to echo how God would actually do that one day? All right. But Moses is not done describing how dark and how corrupt the world is. So just because we have this echo of hope doesn't mean this is widespread and this is a, this is a sweet day. Look at, matter of fact, chapter 6, just, it's, it's full of utter corruption. Now, uh, before I start in the verses, there's some, there's some uh, interpretive differences on uh, a word that's going to come up. It's Nephilim, and, you know, so some people will say, well, these were angels who were um, having SEX with man and women. And some people will say it's giants. The word literally probably translates best, especially in context, as giant men. Okay, so just have that in mind as I read this. We're not going to get bogged down in which way it goes, okay? Um, but the text is beginning to, to overlay the corruption. And most specifically, instead of the Bible saying, here are all the sins that man were committing, what Moses wants to reveal is that what God created in image-bearing purpose, in this, this multiplying by man and woman coming together in marriage and multiplying and filling the earth, displaying God's glory in community, stewarding the world, okay? That's what God created, all Moses is going to do is explain to us how all that has come undone. So he's going to focus in on relationships in this passage and how multiplying has gone the wrong way. Does that make sense? Okay, so he wants, Moses is writing this. He wants us to see that what God created in 1 and 2 is completely coming undone as this begins to play out. So verse 1 says, this is 6, when man began to multiply on the face of the land. That sounds right, doesn't it? We were told to do. 
But look at what's happening. And, the, and, and daughters were born to them. And I think this is kind of like an idiom or a way of describing it that if you were talking about a son, you would say a son of God. The idea that the, that the boys were carrying down this image that was given to Adam. It's not discrediting women in that process, but women were referred to as the daughters of men. Okay? And so, right, you get it because Adam was formed from God and then woman came out of Adam. It's, I don't think in any way saying women are of less value at all. It's just like an idiom. It's just a, a phrase. And so... Daughters were born to them. These sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. Now, this is not a whole lot different from Adam and Eve. I think that Adam looked at Eve and said, whoa, she's hot. I like her. Here's what's different. You remember what Lamech did? Where he took multiple women? Now, they're not even engaging in marriage. I mean, he at least was marrying them, calling them his wives. Now what's happening is just widespread men are just collecting women to themselves. Here's what's being described to us. And they took as their wives any they chose. Verse 3. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. That's post-flood. Okay. The Nephilim, or the giants, were on the earth in those days. And also afterwards, when the Son of God, excuse me, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they were born children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old. The men of renown. So I think what's happening, this is all just my explanation, we won't get too far into the detail, is that basically you were having a male dominance on earth. Men were like, I like women, okay, and I'd like to have several. Well, just like out in the wild, like you have a lion who has territory, right, and he has a pride of of women, I think this was happening. So the, the giants, the mightiest of the men were beginning to rise up, and they were taking all the ladies. It's just my interpretation of what's happening here. It's why giants and mighty men are mentioned But the point is, I think, undisputable, that what God has created to be good is now distorted. And it's increasingly growing evil and dark and distorted. Right? Adam and Eve, union, chapter 2 of Genesis. Now we get Lamech, he's taken on multiple wives. Now we're at a point in history where men are just taking women as they choose. And here's how God describes it. Look at verse 5, this is 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Look at how, like, he's going to say it three different ways. That every intention of the thoughts, so this is everything that motivates a man's thoughts, the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You, You get what's trying to be communicated here? There's no room in the mind or the heart of man for anything good. It's not like he trips and falls down and makes an occasional mistake here and there. Everything about man is is reflecting wickedness. So when God looks at the earth that was created, no matter which way you spin it, to reflect his glory, now what's being reflected is corruption and wickedness and darkness. He'll say it again in verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. You see that? So God's looking at the earth and he's seeing corruption being reflected. The earth, this is 11, was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. Are we feeling the magnitude of that? God's creation, this ball of earth, water, land, animals, fish, sky, atmosphere, gravity, man and woman. This whole thing was created to reflect the glory of the king. And right now when God looks at it, he's seeing a reflection. It's a reflection of corruption and evil wickedness. The omnipresence of God on earth. Think about that. God's glory was supposed to fill the earth. 
Now what's filling it? The image of wickedness. The glory of sin. God's glory on earth has been exchanged. The omnipresence of God has been exchanged for the omnipresence of wickedness. Are you beginning to feel how dark it is on earth at this point? So when God says... The earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. He's not just saying, you know, hey, there was a few news flashes about murder going on. He's saying everything that's going on on the earth right now is just wicked. The fracture, the shadow of death has what? Has continued to grow. And so when we see hope in these passages, you see how it's just a small hope that's being echoed forward? All right. So now we get the flood Seven, we're not going to go over the flood. This is probably something you're familiar with. It wasn't just, um, you know, Noah and, his, Noah and his sons on a fishing trip pitching hay to animals. I mean, it was dark. It was, it was ugly. There weren't a whole lot of people on the face of the earth. It wasn't like billions, but there were enough people that they knew people were drowning and dying. Okay? It was a very dark time in chapter 7. But here's the point, okay? So we're tempted to read the flood account thinking God's hitting the reset button. Like maybe God's like, hey, you know what? First tempt didn't work. Maybe if I start over, it'll work this time. That's some, it's the way some people approach the story. I don't think that, that it all, is at all what God is doing here. Um, two things I think are happening with the flood. One, we're seeing God's character. Okay? What do you mean God's character? Well, go all the way back to Genesis 2. God said, don't eat from this tree or you'll die. If he doesn't keep that word, he's a liar. God's faithful to, it's not like God didn't warn Right? He warned Adam, this is what will happen. He even warned Cain. Sin is crouching at your door, Cain. If you don't rule over it, it's going to take you. He warned Cain that death would follow sin. And so God said, sin leads to death. This is what Paul is saying in Romans. For the wages of sin is death. It always has been. So God is displaying his own character, his own faithfulness to his own word. God is displaying his justness. To man. He's keeping his word. The second thing that I think is happening here is that um, God is, is, is displaying a remnant of hope in the midst of chaos and darkness and evil. And this is the way he chose to do it. I, I don't have any other explanation for the flood. God says, I want to show you, I want to show you what sin gets you. It's death. Now there's one. He's, he's a descendant of Seth. He carries on this image of God. There's one. And I'm going to save him and his boys and their families. And the remnant of hope is going to come through them. But don't put your hope in men. Because guess what Noah does right after the flood? God makes a promise. Then he gets drunk and gets naked in his tent. And, right? Now he's a horrible example. The hope is not in Noah. It's not. It's being passed down through Noah. But the hope is in God and God alone as the rescuer. Right? No, the only reason Noah knew to build a boat is because God told him to. Noah wasn't the hero of that story, was he? I mean, the only reason that the, the water dried up is because God dried it up. God is still in control. I don't think God is in a last-ditch effort hitting the reset button hoping it works this time. God's displaying something to us here. And I love this, that the hope is not gone after the flood. Chapter 8, flood is gone just the first verse of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah. 
seems so simple, doesn't it, for God to say that God remembered Noah? Um, but think about what they've walked through or floated through. <laughs> Days upon weeks upon months, rain, darkness, death, destruction. Um, it's one thing to be out on a big boat floating in the sea when you know that how to get back to land or you'll touch base with land soon. But, I mean, they're, they're right? I mean, they're helpless out there. The only way he can know if there's dry land, he sends a bird out to see if it'll bring him back a, you know, a tree branch or stay gone. But the bird keeps returning at first because there's no place for the bird to land. Hopelessness here. Like, I think for us, I, I, I would dare say that every person in the room has experienced a time where you asked that question, God, do you remember me? We were still living under the shadow of death. And there's still moments, days, weeks, even months, maybe even years in your life where you're asking that question. And so I don't think that's an insignificant phrase there. When Moses writes down, God remembered Noah. God is a God who remembers. He remembers you. Not only does he remember you, he remembers his promises. Chapter 9 begins with, God blessed Noah and his sons. And he said to them, do what? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Does that sound familiar? God is saying, my plans don't change. You cannot thwart my will. Man can become as corrupt as he wants to become. Even to the point where he's exchanging relationships and and everything I created to be good. He can corrupt the whole thing. But I'm still a sovereign God in control. And my purposes will not be thwarted by man or his sin. Noah? Noah? Same thing I told Adam, be fruitful and multiply. That gives me hope. Not only that, in verse 6, he says, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God did what? He made man in his own image. Remember that part of the creation account? It's not done. Noah is a descendant of Seth, right? He's passing on that image of God to his sons. Verse 7, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. Now, since Genesis 3, I think um, that the shadow of death that that has been cast over humanity has done nothing but grow. Now, we, in our generation, like generations before us, we become complacent to it. But let me just share with you why. I think that this is right now um, on the earth. I think murder has grown from Cain killing his brother um, to a magnitude that the earth has never known before. Just a few examples. Um, you know how many thousands of, of little babies will be killed this year in abortion? The little procedure we call abortion. If you go back over the history of just the United States where that's been legal, um, and, and that's not like a political thing. Like in Exodus, after the Ten Commandments, God says, if two men are wrestling, fighting, and one of them bumps into a pregnant woman and she aborts, that baby, God says, that's murder. That's where the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth from a, for a tooth comes from. Causing an unborn baby to die. Like, you see how I'm, I'm saying, like, murder is just like, like, we live at a time, you know that North Korea is now rattling the sword of its nuclear arsenal. We live at a time where at the touch of a button, more people can be murdered, right? And in a time where murder is, is justified in so many ways. Um, I mean, just this past week, had a police officer shot. He, he lived, he's still alive, praise God. But then 
in Erath County on Thursday, a man was shot and killed. Then yesterday, um, the, the man who kind of, uh, he wrote a book about being a sniper, um, he was killed. Like murder is just rampant in our culture. We see the progression. Cain got mad at his brother and killed him. Right? Then Lamech progresses with that and says, what? I killed a man just because he punched me. You see how it's progressed? Think about the other thing that God created here, this beautiful, beautiful union of marriage to display community. We live in a time, right, when the, 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 the structure of the family is so subjective. Like we don't live in a time where there is a, a template we would go, that's right. Man and woman marry each other, stay committed and marry. They raise children, their children would grow up to marry, stay committed. Like divorce is like all around us. It's in some of your lives and you know it. There's like no good way to walk through a divorce. Why? Because it's an undoing of what God created. It's painful. It hurts. Now, some of you, you, know, you were subject to that by somebody else's choice. Some of it was your own. We're not getting into that. We're just saying it's the undoing of what was good. That's why it hurts. You see how this shadow has just continued to grow? So as desperate as Genesis 6 is, I believe we today are more desperate. You guys familiar with the frog in the pot of boiling water? You know, you take a a frog and you throw him in a pot of boiling water and then you salt it and it's good to eat. It's not really how it goes. If you watch Duck Dynasty, it is. Um, But the point is the frog would try to get out, right? I mean, you need to make sure you kill the frog before you throw it in because he'll jump out. But if you take a frog and put him in a cool vat of water and you slowly heat it over time, he'll end up dying, boiling to death. That's what I believe happens to us generation after generation. We're born into a family that kind of gives us a worldview. We're, we're growing up as young people watching the news going, well, it must be normal, right? Must be normal. I expect to turn on the news and, and hear somebody got killed or shot or another, you know, DWI accident. I expect to hear that stuff. You see how complacent we've become to this? We live in a corrupt world. It's an undoing of what God created to be good. It's rampant wickedness. And so anywhere you open in the Bible, you're looking forward to a rescuer, to a king who would come and rescue his people and reckon all things. So when Jesus enters the scene, when he steps into the story, I love how John describes him. The gospel writer not only says, was he in the beginning, he created all things, but he was the, he was the in him was light, and the darkness has not overcome it. It's like John's way of saying, I know that the world has grown dark, but not dark enough to overcome God. That's why we sing, you know, here I am to worship begins with what? Light of the world, you step down into darkness. So the time on earth that Jesus was walking, he was literally walking, displaying his glory and displaying the kingdom and hope. That's why he was touching people and healing them, giving hope, proclaiming a message of hope, revealing to the created world I am a king and I am not forgotten you. I keep my promises. And then what did he leave us with? He left us with a spirit and he left us with a promise. I will return and I will bring my kingdom down on this world and I will reckon all things and make them right. Can we stop right there for just a second? That sounds good to me. Does it sound good to you? God's going to reckon all this mess. The news, right? Here's the problem with that. If all God does is reckon, right, give a reckoning for sin, guess what? I'm in the lineage of Cain. 
And this is why God displays his character of grace to us. This is why we say God is rich in mercy. Because here's what God is doing for those who believe on his son. He is pulling every one of us who trusts in Jesus, pulling us out of the kingdom of darkness. And he's planting us in a kingdom with hope. In 1 Peter chapter 2, I'm going to read a few verses. I'm going to read what I believe is Peter saying these same things to us. This is towards the end of your New Testament. You can watch it on the screen. It's, I, I feel this in the words of Peter here as he writes this in chapter 2, verse 9. It starts with a but. Like, anytime you see that, it's incredibly significant in the Scripture. But. It's, so he's going to tell you who you are. So what he's saying is that's not who you are. But here's who you are. You are a chosen race. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. You belong to the king. You're his kingdom. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You know what that proclaim is saying? That you and I now reflect the glory of the king. He has extracted, he has rescued us out of this kingdom of darkness. And he's called us into his marvelous light. Once you were, you were not a people. Is that a tongue? That sounds weird. What he's saying is once you were all individuals. We're going to see that next week at the Tower of Babel. But once you all lived for your own glory. You were not a people. But now you, not only are you a people, you're God's people. He's restoring community here. A sense that you and I living together are his kingdom. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, verse 11, I urge you as sojourners, think about that, as people who journey on this fallen world, as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, this is so important. This is a call to holiness. Two things. I don't think it's, um, I don't think it happens often enough in the current church to call people to holiness. But when it does happen, I think it happens for the wrong reasons. Oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes. We tend to call people to holiness as a way of making God happy. You need to be holy with your life so God will be happy with you, right? It's the, it's the Christmas thing. Do the right thing, do good, be holy with your life, and you'll get more presents under your tree. This is not what Peter's saying. He's calling us to holiness, but look at what he says. I urge you as these sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, calling us towards holiness, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Why? Because we get more presence at the end of the day, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and do what? Glorify God on the day of his visitation. We're called to holiness Because Jesus is fixing in us this fractured image that you and I might begin to display the glory of the king again. That we might return to image bearers as his citizens. Now that's different from be good and I'll pay you back with presents. Isn't it? God's saying be holy as I am holy. Now this plays out in so many different ways in the gospel. Matthew um, 18 is one place that I see it very clearly. In Matthew 18, um, Jesus gives instructions. says, if, if, uh, if anybody has sinned against you, 
um, you go to them and you work it out between the two of you. If that doesn't work, you go a layer deeper and you bring witnesses and then you bring it before the church. But the goal is that relationships would be restored in God's kingdom. That sin wouldn't sever our relationships and stay that way. Jesus is like, you guys, you, you need to understand that I've brought reconciliation. And you need to display that in the way you treat one another. Okay, that ends with a question from Peter. Uh, a very famous question. Let me read it for you, verse 21. Then Peter came up and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? You understand what Peter's saying? How many times until I get to punch him in the face? Right? Because I know the first time I'm tempted to do it, but I'm going to forgive. How many times before I can draw the line in his sand and then just give him the boot and kick him out? And then he goes on to say, as many as seven, uh, seven times? Maybe, that, maybe that'll make Jesus happy. Jesus says to him in verse 22, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. I don't know if you caught it earlier in chapter 4 of Genesis, but that was the end of Lamech's speech to his wives. I killed a man for wounding me. If Cain's vengeance was seven, may Lamech's be 77. You see what Jesus is undoing here? All the corruption and deceit, the turmoil that exists in relationships. And then here's what he does. He goes into a parable and tells a story about a king, this wealthy uh, person who, who um, he decided to settle his accounts. And a guy comes up to him who owes him more than he can pay. Are you familiar with this parable? And the guy begs him for his life. Just give me time, I'll pay you back. And it's so ridiculous. It would take 200,000 years of wages to pay him back what he owes. Okay? And so the king says, I'll tell you what. I'll wipe the slate completely clean. Boom. This is how Jesus answers Peter's question on 77 times. I'll wipe the, wipe the slate completely clean. And then what does the man do? He goes out and finds a servant who owes him an amount of money that could be paid back. And he holds him accountable and sends him to prison. The king hears about this and says what? You unmerciful servant. If I forgave you so much, why couldn't you extend a little bit? What is that parable teaching us? Two things. One, the reason why Jesus is calling us to reflect mercy to one another is that we, we display his glory when we do that. But the whole point of this is that this is about God's forgiveness. The whole point of all that was not that you and I could have like a, a step, two, step, one, two, three, four, a four-step program to reconcile relationships. Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to bring a reconciliation in your life that's going to be so, so huge. Remember how Lamech mouthed off in his arrogance? I'm going to answer that. And I'm going to extend forgiveness even to that level. Think about it. Can we both be honest? Like, can we be honest with one another? If somehow you and I could find the courage to drop the church facade, and we were going to be real gut level honest, not only have we participated in sin in our lives, there have been moments where we, like Lamech, have been just so boastfully arrogant about it. You see what Jesus is saying here about his forgiveness? I'm not just going to forgive Cain. My forgiveness is going to extend to the point where I, I, will, I will right the wrong of Lamech. So Jesus says to him, I don't say seven times, but 77 times. Peter's got to be going, that's impossible. And Jesus is going, you're absolutely right. I am here to undo the impossible. It wasn't undone in Noah. It wasn't even undone in Abraham or any of those who followed after him. 
but one came after them, my son, and it was undone in him. I want to leave you with this as a, just a second, I'll invite the worship team back up. Um, I want you to hear something today. Like, this is not just inspiration for life. Okay, this is not just to give you a pep talk and charge you up and go, go back out in the dark world and just be positive. This is God saying to you, I have a legitimate, real hope for you to take hold of. The world out there is, is dark and it's without hope. But my hope will give you courage in this world, okay, to walk as a reflector of my glory. But it will also give you a confidence to step into the next. Um, did the, I did a funeral for my step-grandmother Friday. She was 102 years old. It's pretty amazing, right? When I look at the hope of man here on earth, we seem to place so much hope in A, possessions, or B, preserving our life. Isn't that why we, we work out, we try to trim it up and clean it up and be healthy and get our levels down and make sure we're ready, right? I mean, so we're trying to, pro, we find hope in that, Okay. And so, like, I'm doing this funeral for a lady who was 102 years old, and at the end of her life, she was like, she would say, um, I-, I can see clearly God is taking care of my children, my grandchildren, my great-grandchildren. What's he waiting on? I'm ready to go. And so, like, long life wasn't, there wasn't hope in that. Matter of fact, the longer she lingered on living, the more she began to go, I sure hope God hasn't forgotten me. Right? Because why? Because her, wo- her hope in this life was waning. It was deteriorating quickly. And she knew it. And she knew she was done. And her hope was where? It was in the next. That's the hope that Christ has brought to us as our king. And that's the hope he's offering to you today. I'm going to pray for you that um, today would be a day of, of a couple of things. Maybe just, um, maybe you brought hopelessness into this room. Just discouragement. Maybe you're in a situation right now that's incredibly dark and it's hard to see the hope. That my, my prayer is going to be that you would lay that down in here today. And see that as not true. I feel hopeless. The situation seems impossible, but I'm laying it down. But second to that, I'm going to pray specifically for anybody in the room who has not entered into a relationship with the living God. And you're still walking in a sense of hopelessness. You're still waiting for somebody to explain God in a way that makes sense to you, and then you'll buy in. Um, it's not going to happen. God is bigger than we are. We, we can't wrap our brains around who he is, but we can trust what he says. He is faithful to, to do what he says year after year, generation after generation. And he's, his faithfulness is here for you today, that you would trust in him. And I'm going to pray for you.